Welcome to the Garage Podcast, presented to you by the Young Adults Group at Salem First Baptist Church. Thanks for tuning in to hear this week's message from Pastor Tyler Hankey. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Garage for week two in our series called Best Life Ever. This is looking at the life of Solomon, King Solomon, in the words that he puts into what we call the Book of Ecclesiastes. This is part of his wisdom literature, and this is really a look back at his life And the test that he put on many different things to say and ask the question, where do I find the best life ever? Where do I find the most joy? Where do I find the most meaning? Where do I find the most purpose? So last week we started with where Solomon started. We looked at the beginning of his testing and he tested pleasure and he tested work. And he he found very quickly, he's like, all the different women that he slept with didn't matter. All the things that he'd built, all the tasks that he'd accomplished didn't matter. He tested drunkenness. He tested folly, all of it. And he goes, man, no matter how drunk I get, no matter how stupid or no matter what stupid things I do, I have not gotten to the place where I can definitively say, you know, here is the most joy or this life is the best. So going through all of that, he gets to the end of chapter three and he goes, here's what I've determined. Man can do nothing better than to eat, drink, and find satisfaction in their work. This is a gift from the Lord. So until you and I submit our our goals for life, until we submit our longings for relationship or or marriage, our, our longing for an amazing job, our desire to get a huge paycheck, whatever it is, until I submit those things to the Lord and see them as gifts from God, I'm never really going to enjoy them. And so today, we're going to continue in the vein of testing things. And Solomon wants to test our motivation in life, our motivation for work, and our relational ability, or really just how we define our relational need and just how we see other people. But before we do that, before he jumps into any of that, he starts chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes in, I would argue, one of the saddest ways possible. So it's interesting to me that he does this because if you're not, if you don't really think through this one, you can kind of breeze over the beginning of chapter four and then get to the meat. But let's start here because he starts here. So I just want to read it to you. And I want you to ask, why do you think the wisest man on earth would start a philosophical discussion of life this way? Here's what he says. He says, again, I looked and I saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. You see... How he begins is incredibly sad. And he's going, I looked at the world and I see two types of people. I see the oppressed and I see those that are oppressing them. Neither have a comforter, but clearly power and victory is on the side of the oppressors. And and here's his conclusion. He goes, it would seem to me that those who are dead are happier than the living because they don't need to experience evil anymore but happier than both the dead and the living are those who haven't been born yet because they haven't seen any evil. 
what a depressing way to view life. And yet, really, it's a gift to me and you. Here's why. Philosophical discussions are a lot of fun. I mean, trust me, I, I of all people, if you want to go hang out and have a cigar and just talk about the deeper things of life, if you want to sit down at a table with a good beer or a great cup of coffee, I'm your guy. Like, I absolutely love those things. However, if you and I, if all we do is have a discussion on the philosophical, if all we do is pursue the theoretical, here's the danger. We can begin to sanitize life in a way where we avoid the real practical pain of others. Think about this. If all you were doing is just day after day having a discussion over how can I have a better life? Um, how can I have a better job? How can I enjoy my job more? How can I advance in this life? If you, if all your discussions are only about self-advancement, here's the danger. You're either going to fall in love with yourself and your own betterment, or you're going to fall in love with the world and your ability to advance through it. This is the danger of all philosophy majors. And if you're a philosophy major, you got to admit this. There, there's a potential to get really arrogant. When you start reading some of the great thinkers of the world and you're like, oh, I've read Dostoevsky and I've read Plato and I've read Aristotle and I drink all my beverages with my pinky out. It's like you can get to the place where in your thinking, you just don't think of others. And all you're doing is thinking deeper. And there's, there's a danger there. And so here's what Solomon does at the very beginning. He's like, no, we're going to have a philosophical discussion. But here's what he did. He goes, with all my wisdom... I looked out at the world, and here's the reality of it. People are dying. There are people that are oppressed. There are people that don't, they're not living my life, and I need to see that because if I'm only concerned with me, I'm going to sanitize the existence of others, and that's not okay. You want to know what Solomon did here? Let me tell you where I think he, or what, what he would say if he were here in modern times. He'd say, friends, before we talk about motivation for life and work, I want you to think about Texas. I want you to think about Uvalde. I want you to think about the 19 children that are dead. Now, I know that this is a lot to take in and this is dramatic, but you got to follow me on this for a second. Because think about, think about the parents of those kids this morning. I guarantee you I know what they're thinking. They, they process at light speed, their own life story, right? Like the, if you're in their position, think about this. You're a young man, you're a young woman, you find someone that you fall in love with at college, you get married and, and you do your best to work your butt off. You get a great job and you think, I want to have kids. And so you start having kids. You have a little boy, you have a little girl. And you're like, man, I need to make sure I get a good job so I can move to a great part of town where I'm going to go, where my kids are going to go to a great school, where they're going to be safe. The whole time, you're never thinking one day my kid's going to get shot. So you, you take your kids to the school. They grow up in this school. These kids were 8, 9, 10 years old. And, and if you didn't know this part of the story, this broke my heart. The students that day in the class that got shot up had an award ceremony. So mom and dad saw their kid that morning and celebrated with them. And if they're anything like me, I mean, if my kid has a win at school, I'm like, 
son, daughter, we're going out to ice cream. I'm going to, you know, we're going to go to the toy store. Like I obliterate my budget, blessing my kids when they succeed like that. You know, the parents did that, but the award ceremony was in the morning. And so they had it and then they went home. But then instead of seeing their kid get off the bus, they got the call saying, please come identify the body. You want to know what those parents are thinking? Why try? Why try? I mean, I, I work hard. I found someone amazing. I mean, if they're Christian, they're like, I honored God. You know, if they're, if they're not a Christian, they're like, I, I'm not a horrible person. I've, I've done good things and I put my kid in a good school and my child still dies. Why in the world should I try? Here's another person I want you to think about this morning. I want you to think about women in Afghanistan. Th this one grieves my heart because in for generations, women were not allowed to go to any level of upper-level university, upper-level school. And so very recently in, in the culture in Afghanistan, women were allowed to go. And so think about this. You're a young lady. You're, you're coming out of lower-level education, and you're like, no other woman in your family has been to university level. So you're going to be the first. Unbelievably proud. Everyone in your family is proud. They're all excited. You're going to university, and then all of a sudden, due to a number of shifting political reasons, the U.S. pulls out of Afghanistan, and the Taliban swoops in. And now, you go right back to where you were before, invisible, not, not allowed to pursue any level of higher level education unless you do it secretly, which is scary. So think about being a young adult woman in Afghanistan right now. You want to know what she's thinking? Why try? My friends, I'm excited this morning to talk with you about philosophical things. I'm excited to talk with you about theoretical things. I really am. I think it's important. I think we need to do it. But if me and you, if all we do is think about our own self-betterment, we are going to sanitize life and, and honestly get to the point where we, we might genuinely believe I don't need God because I'm advancing just fine without him. That's the danger. I want to read to you a quote from, um, from a commentator named Dr. Constable. Here's what he said about this section of scripture. He says, By thoroughly disgusting us with the world and by making us realize its absolute vanity, God means to draw us to himself. Only in this way can Jehovah, the true and absolute being, become to us what he really is. Through much tribulation must our hold on earthly things be loosened and ourselves enter into the kingdom of God. My friends, I, I love talking about work. I love talking about motivation. I love talking about goals. I do. But you and I can't fall in love with this world. Your pursuit of relationships or jobs or work or whatever can never overtake your love and thankfulness and gratitude towards the Lord. Because if it does, you'll become obsessed with yourself in love with the world, and we can't love the world and God. And by love the world, I don't mean people. I mean the world system. I can't love advancing myself and love God at the same time. 
So let us remember this. And, and to solidify this in your brain, I want to read a passage of Scripture from Hebrews, and then we're going to jump into motivation for work and, um, and just relationships. Here's what Hebrews says. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I would argue it's actually pretty easy to pursue work and self-betterment and even relationships. To pursue the Lord is hard. To pursue righteousness is hard. But he says, throw off everything that hinders. And for some of you, what you need to throw off is your absolute obsession with getting married. Some of you, and, and, and you've already, you've defined marriage as a good thing, and it is, but you are so obsessed with it, you are missing what God has for you right now. You're missing real friendships. You're missing certain jobs. You're missing certain ministry opportunities because you're like, I just got to get married. Others of you, much like my past, you are so obsessed with making money that you are missing opportunities. I've told this story before, but I was so obsessed with making money that when I went to Colorado State University, I signed up for the pre-med program to try to be a doctor of all things. Not because I cared about being a doctor, not because I cared about people, I just wanted a big paycheck. See, sometimes it's not so much an evil thing that you need to throw off. I mean, if any of you are in sin, you gotta throw that off and pursue God. But others of you are looking at good, technically good things. But it says, throw that off and run with perseverance the race marked out for you. Some of you, you know the right thing to do, but you're just scared of it because it's harder than, than the thing that you're doing right now. But he says, look at what Jesus did and let that give you hope. Look at how Jesus persevered to the cross through the opposition of all of the sin of different sinners, all the different things th that got in the way of him coming and loving us, let that inspire you so that you do not grow weary and lose heart. Now, with all of that said, so some of you, you just got to turn the podcast off and you just got to go do your own thing. You just got to think through that. For the rest of you that are ready, here we go. Let's talk about your motivation for work and your how you view relationships. So here's the first one. Solomon breaks up all human beings into three, one of three categories. So here's what he said, and then I'll break the categories up. He says in verse 5, Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. So here's the three people. He titles the first one for you. He says, here's the fool. He doesn't so much title the next ones, but I, I title them out of the outcome of what they get. The, the second one is the wise worker, and the third is the unwise worker. So here's the first one, the fool, then the wise worker, then the unwise worker. So let me give you each of their motivations, and then we'll look at their outcome. So Solomon looks at the first one. He goes, 
There are people out there that look at the idea of work and there's no motivation. So what's the motivation for the fool? There is none. They just don't want to work. He says there are people that fold their hands and they ruin themselves. I actually love what the ESV version says. It says they eat themselves. I love that language. Because if you just sit there and you're like, you know what? Why try? I, I just, life's too hard or, or I'm too comfortable where I'm at. You know, you're, you're living with mommy and daddy and you enjoy it and they're not ready to kick you out. So you're just like, eh, why work? And if you're like, I'll move out eventually, let me tell you, I've had a couple sit downs with parents with 40 year olds that are still in their basement. It's not a pretty picture. So Solomon looks at the first group of people and he says, you're fools. If you don't want to work, you're a fool. So here, here's what I love. And this is what you need to focus on. He doesn't demonize work. W work is amoral. There is good work, there's healthy work, and then there's unhealthy work. And then that, that first category are those that just don't want to work at all. So ignore them for a second, unless you're not working. Then you need to stop listening to me right now and go get a job. But for those of you that are working, he draws a line. There is work that is life-giving and there's work that is life-taking. He goes, it is better to have one handful, and he doesn't define what that is, but let's just say one handful of money or one handful of stuff or just kind of one hand of life. He goes, it's better to have one handful with peace than to have two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. So what is the motivation of the wise worker? Well, he's already told you that in, in the previous week at the end of chapter three, and he actually says it again at the end of chapter five. He goes, people can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their work as a gift from the Lord. When I see my work as a gift, I don't need to scramble for it. I don't need to toil for it. And that's not saying that you're not working hard. It's just saying I don't need to strive and demand that I get everything that I think I want. No, there is peace when I accept work as a gift. But there's another form of work. It's life taking. What is the motivation of someone that is working almost too hard? Well, he actually tells you in verse four, he says, I have noticed that the motivation for all those who toil is the envy of others. This is huge, friends. If you get nothing that I've said so far, get this. Some of you are like, man, okay, I, I want to work hard, but where's the line between working too much and not working enough? Great question. You want to know where it is? What you define as success. It's huge. Have you ever stopped and asked yourself, when, when have I won? What is my win? What have I defined as success? And let me give you an example of this. I was asked this by a mentor. Um, a while ago. So my, my mentor comes up and he goes, <clears throat> he goes, Tyler, you want to be a pastor, right? And I go, yep, I do. He goes, you want to be a senior pastor, don't you? And I was like, yep, I do. He says, how big is the audience in your dreams? Like when you're sitting there daydreaming and you're imagining yourself on the stage, how many people are out in front of you? And I was like, dang, that's a good question. It's one of those questions where like, you know, your mentor has you by the throat and you can't escape this one. Because I knew where he was going. And I answered him. I was like, honestly, seven to 800 people. 
And he knew exactly why I said that number, because that's exactly how many people are sitting in the audience of my father's church. You see, at that point in my life, I was defining what a win was based on what God had given my father and not what God was calling me to. Some of you are doing the same thing. You are defining your life and whether it's good or bad, whether it's a win or a loss, not based on what God has called you to, but based on what somebody else has. So for you, you're like, I will have a win if I date someone as pretty as who my buddy is dating. I will have a win when I get married. Like, I will be successful when I finally get married. I will be successful when I've got this job. I'll be successful when I've got this car. I'll be successful when I've got this amount of money. When, when here's the reality, you have not, to this day, slowed down and said, God, what do you have for me? What are you calling me to? And, and even, if you, even if you have seen what God has called you to, some of you are jumping the gun and you are craving or desiring what you might actually get, but you just need to wait. Like maybe God will give me 800 people in an audience one day. I don't know. I sure do love the audience that I've got right now. I love all the people that I get to talk to in the young adult group. But if I consider myself a loser or if I consider my life a, a loss just because I don't have the amount of people that my father does, I mean, one, I'm crazy because the man's been pastoring for decades, okay, and I haven't. But two, what if God just doesn't have that for me? Some of you are defining your life as a loss because you're not married yet, and yet you've never stopped to ask the question, what, what if God doesn't have that for me right now? Or ever? And I know that's a scary place to be, but if we don't learn how to slow down and say, God, what do you have for me? And we define our success by somebody else's metric, that's an even scarier place to be. That's where you're going to get hurt. Because honestly, your life by anyone's standards could be a win. Heck, you could have someone looking at you right now and they have determined that your life right now as it is, is a win for them. And you're looking at your life as a loss, but you're comparing it to somebody else. So here's what you need to do. You need to, you need to ask the question, what is motivating me? Like, am I the fool? Am I the wise worker? Am I the unwise worker? Am I experiencing burnout even as a young adult? Not because life is really that hard, but because I have considered everything I've done as a loss because I'm not at where I want to be. What is your motivation for work? Now, Solomon moves on from here and he begins to ask a different question. Seemingly unrelated, but you'll see the connection here in a second. Solomon, as he's writing, he, he says this. He goes, I saw a man and this man was alone. Now you can read into this, ladies. He goes, I saw a woman and she was by herself. So he goes, I see a person and they're alone. And they've worked their whole life and they reach the end and they ask this question. Why? Why am I even working? Who am I working for? So he, he basically begins and he wants to paint this picture of a very lonely person, probably near the end of their career. And he goes, they have no kids. They have no family. 
They are completely alone and they discover a horrific truth. I have lived my life for no one but me. I'm completely alone and I can't even give someone an inheritance even if I wanted to. And so then he gives you this list and I guarantee you everyone in the audience, you're going to be like, okay, these are all kind of duh moments. I, I promise you, you will. But I want to ask you a question at the end that hopefully ties this all together. So listen to this list. This is Solomon's response to the, met, the, the kind of figurative alone person. He says this, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. I mean, th these are all fantastic one-liners, right? Full of wisdom and practical truth. Makes sense, right? Why do you think he wrote this? Why does the wisest man in the world need to write down, hey, two are better than one. They've got a good return on their labor. In, in this conversation of motivation for work and, and relationship, why would he go here? Because my friends, you all need to slow down and not, not this is not asking you like, hey, little Billy, do you have friends? No? Oh, you should get some because two are better than one. I don't think that's at all what he's saying. Here's what Solomon is saying. when He would look you in the face, sit you down and say, not do you have friends, but what do you think about yourself and your own abilities? What do you actually think that you're capable of? My friends, here's something that might just mess with you. Some of you think that you've got a lot of friends because you hang out with people a lot, but the fact is, you don't. You might not have any friends. What you do have are people that make you feel good. But when you think about your life, when you think about your friendships and relationships, you actually don't have friends, you have acquaintances. You have familiar people to you that make you feel good. But in this conversation of the best life ever, how can I have the best life ever? Solomon says, you develop yourself relationally and become a good friend. I want you to go back to the list and I want you to notice something about all of these scenarios. Two are better than one. They've got a good return on their labor. What are these two doing? They're working. Look at the next one. If either one falls down, the other can help them up. Now, this is not like, oh man, my buddy tripped. Let me physically get them off the ground. No, this is a, a real friend is there when the bottom falls out of your life, when the crap hits the fan. Okay, a, a real friend notices when you're struggling and when you're hurting. So you, I, I need you to ask yourself the question, when was the last time that I was a real friend? Not when was the last time I hung out with someone. I don't care about that. You shouldn't either. When was the last time you stopped what you were doing because you discovered that a friend of yours was hurting or they made a really bad decision and you were like, okay, I'm stopping what I'm doing. I'm picking up the phone and I'm calling or I'm getting in the car and I'm going to go see him. 
If either of them falls down, one can help the other one up. Did you notice what, what's there in verse 9 or verse 10? Excuse me. Need. Here's the next one. If two lie down together, they will keep warm. How can one keep warm by themselves? What's the problem there? The cold. Now, do I think that you need to cuddle with all of your friends to be a true friend? No. Here's his point. We need comfort in this life. And you don't comfort yourself. Here's the basic logic of a real friend. They are there when you have a need. So when was the last time you met somebody's need? You want to know what's funny about real friends? They're needy. See, some of you are trying to go through life and find someone that really doesn't need you. Like, man, I love hanging out with this person because there's no drama and, and, and they don't really require anything of me. We, we both love the same things. And I'm like, yeah, but you're not describing a real friend. You are describing a human being that makes you feel good about who you are and does the things that you like to do. That's not a real friend. Look at verse 12. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. You want to know what he just described? An attack. He goes, in this life, you're going to get attacked. You're going to get attacked by bosses that don't have your value system. You're going to get attacked by, by women that give no cares about your marriage. They just want to come in and wreck you. Two can defend themselves. In all of these different examples that Solomon just gave, there's need. There's a problem. And the real friend meets the need. He's not asking you, you know, do you have an acquaintance? Do you have someone that makes you feel good? What he's asking is, are you a real friend? Because if you read all of these things and your conclusion is, well, yeah, all of these are kind of duh, then here's your final conclusion. Relational development for you is of the utmost importance. Do you want the best life ever? Then create in yourself the best friend ever. Do you really want a great life? Then my friend, you don't just want acquaintances. You don't just want people that make you feel good. You want someone there that when everything in your life falls apart, they're right there. You want someone that when you're getting attacked, they, they're texting you their prayers for you. They're calling you. you. You want someone that when you genuinely need comfort, not some cheesy Christian line, when you really want comfort, they're there. Don't ask yourself, do you have friends? Ask yourself, am I a good friend? Do you want the best life ever? You need to analyze what your motivation is for work. And you need to really think about, what do I actually think about my abilities? Do I actually, do I think that I can do this life perfectly all on my own? And friends, if you're there, I get it. I've been there. When I first began young adult ministry, I was doing all of this, all of the lessons on the weekend. I was leading all the guys' Bible studies and doing all of the counseling. And I was burning up fast. And here was the funny thing. Our number as a group was around 40. But when I finally decided to train up leaders and release leadership abilities to others, inside of two years, we got up to 100 people. You want to know why that happens? 
what why people get stuck why you might be stuck because even though you've never actually said it you genuinely think you can do this life on your own you think you can build your business by yourself you think you can get through school by yourself you think you can handle relationships all by yourself ministry all by yourself work all by yourself but you can't and maybe in some sick way you are super talented and so it seems like you can do all this by yourself but i can tell you from experience you're going to burn up you're ultimately going to quit you're going to get angry at people you don't need to get angry at because it's not their fault it's yours and you need to do some some heart work and ask yourself some good questions so again just like last week get some get a pen get some paper or get break out your phone and just write these questions down number one what is your motivation for work do you have none do you see work as a gift or are you pursuing work for your own self-advancement here's another one question two are you being lazy like and some of you might not think you are you're like well no i'm going to school like i'm, I'm doing what i should maybe true but do you think the God of the universe simply made you to go to class, get done, go home, and play video games? I don't think so. God made you unbelievably powerful. He made you intelligent. He gave you spiritual gifts. He gave you practical gifts. He gave you opportunities. Are you wasting those because you're scared? Scared of failing? Or, or you're just you're, you're lazy and you're afraid of hard work? Some of you need a gut check. Get off the couch and get in the game. Number three, have you defined what success is for you? Some of you are like, yeah, yeah, I have. But really, when you think about it, your definition of success is someone else's life. It's not going to lead anywhere good, friends. Define a reasonable goal of success for yourself and ask the Lord, is this actually what you want for me? Number four, what do you really believe about people? Do you believe that people exist simply to serve you and make you feel good? Or are you going through this life and asking, how can I help you? How can I benefit you? How can I take my life and apply it to yours? Here's question five. Are you a good friend? And just think, when was the last time I stopped doing something that I loved or, or even, even if it was just rest, when did I give up what I was doing so that I could go bless somebody? When was the last time that I initiated with my friends and said, hey, we're going to go out to coffee? You might actually shock one of them. They might be like, like, hey, you never do this. And you're like, I know, but I care about you. And we haven't talked in a while. And I just, I, I want to catch up. When was the last time you took someone out to coffee or breakfast or lunch? And don't give me that I'm broke garbage. No one's that broke. And finally, number six, are you giving yourself an excuse to be isolated? Are you giving yourself an excuse to be isolated? You're like, well, I'm an introvert. It's like, stop. Don't give me that. There are plenty of times where I love to just be by myself and recharge. That's fine. I'm not saying being an introvert is bad. But don't don't look at God and say, I'm not going to pursue someone because I'm an introvert. I'm not going to invest in this group of people because I'm an introvert. No, that's an excuse. And I would argue being disobedient. 
where are you investing in other people? And don't, here's another one. Where are you using things like the DISC or Myers-Briggs or Enneagram to excuse yourself from proper functioning in the body of Christ? Don't get me wrong. I love the DISC. I love Enneagram. I love Myers-Briggs. I love anything that helps me get to know myself and other people that I might love them better. But if you're like, well, I'm an Enneagram 9, so I can't. It's like, if I hear that, I will wreck you. My friends, that is cowardice. It's a misuse of personality tools because God does not limit his work in and through you based on your personality. God has called plenty of cowards and scared, timid people to amazing positions in this life, i.e. Moses, Elijah, okay, a number of people. So I can never go to God and say, well, you made me kind of timid, so... No, don't give me that excuse. My friends, I gave you a lot to chew on today. Thanks for hanging in there with me. Go through those questions. Ask them to yourself honestly or pull a friend in and say, hey, I listened to this crazy guy, you know, on a podcast and I want to go through these questions with you. Take someone out to coffee, take them out to breakfast and really dive in. Next week, We're going to look at four dangerous things that Solomon warns us about. So tune back in next week. Hope to to see you. And I hope you guys have a great week. See you later. Thanks for tuning in to the Garage Podcast. We hope the message has made you think deeper about faith and will strike up new conversations as you go about your week. If you want to hear more messages like this, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Have a great week.